Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing, the show where busy people like you learn how to build substantial passive income while creating wealth for the long term. And now, here's your host, Marco Santarelli. Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Marco Santarelli. Well, I have a very special guest today, not only a friend, but one of our preferred mortgage lenders that we work with here at Norada Real Estate Investments. So I got talking to her, I don't know, it was a week or two ago, and I thought, hey, you know what, I need to get you on the show. We need to talk about what's going on in the world in terms of mortgage lending and trends that you see. And so today I have with me Chaley Ridge, and Chaley's the president and CEO of Ridge Lending Group, and she has been a well-established real estate investor for over 20 years now. You wouldn't know that because she looks so young. But she has had properties all across the United States. So she is a seasoned investor and she has worked with tens of thousands of real estate investors all over the country, helping them put together their real estate portfolios to help them realize their dreams as a real estate investor. So with that, Chaley, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Marco. I am very excited to be here. Hopefully I'll be sharing some valuable content to you and your listeners. Thank you for having me. Well, I know you can. That goes without question. So for those people who really don't know who you are or much about you or Ridge Lending Group, why don't you just give us a, an overview about yourself and your company? Sure. So the ongoing soundbite is that Ridge Lending is a second generation company that focuses pretty much exclusively in the non-owner occupied versus the owner occupied side of residential real estate investing. We have a nationwide footprint in almost every state. I should probably, for compliance reasons, mention which we are not in. There are seven of them. Let's see if I can do it by memory. Uh, Alaska, Maine, North Dakota, New York, Vermont, West Virginia, Wyoming. Got it. Otherwise, we're everywhere. So I think that's a real value add for most of our investors. Like you said, I've been doing this for over 20 years. And I think one of the unique things people find out about me is that I am that real estate investor and, and having worn both hats as the lender and an investor hopefully adds some credibility to uh, what we bring to the table. But my personal focus has really been the education of the individual, the individual investor from that lending and underwriting perspective, because I think that everybody listening will agree that the learning curve in real estate investing is pretty intensive just on its own. So when you start to fold in all the financing part, I learned that it's that piece that people tend to be a little bit overwhelmed by, in some cases intimidated by, but the leverage is going to give us our greatest rate of return. So I just think it's very important to have some arsenal, some information, some definitions, what's going on in the underwriting side of all of this, teaching them some of the language about it, because it is like a whole new language and preparing them to understand how to optimize, most important of all, right? How do they keep their debt to income ratio at its lowest, which is optimal for qualifying or their credit score at its highest or their assets available as need to be for underwriting guidelines. So those are the things, if I were to say, you know, a true value add, the education that Ridge provides its clients, uh, I think is, is very valuable. And then finally, I would comment that we are not a one size fits all lender because we're a direct lender, we have a very diverse menu of loan products for our investors that don't just start and stop with the Fannie Freddie stuff. We call those the golden tickets. We've got non-QM products, certainly happy to talk about that. We have short-term bridge loans. We have some commercial funding. So we have a, a pretty diverse mix of loan programs. Yeah, that's a lot. The financing side is the part I think most people dislike. Real estate investors just don't like to compile all the documentation and have to go looking for things and it's 
It's kind of a torturous process, but it's a necessary evil because we want the leverage. We want the financing. It's one of the beautiful things of real estate to be able to put as little as 20% down and you know control 100% of a property. So, But fortunately, when you're working with someone, you put the file together one time, you can keep buying property. And often all you have to do is just refresh the file with the latest bank statements. So you do the hard work one time and then you just refresh it as you go and uh, you can keep buying property. So it's not all that bad. People you know, suck it up. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I'm, I'm so glad you said that because actually I probably should have mentioned exactly. We call it the gauntlet of prequal, vials of blood and DNA samples is the joke that I make. Right. Clients, but, right. Once we have the bones, we do not have to take you through the exhaustive prequal. We do just refresh outstated documents and, and things like that. So yep. good point. So here we are recording in the middle of December. This will probably be out very soon, like as in a week from now. And we just had the elections and now we have potentially a change of guard come January. So not to get political, but you know, politics and monetary policy and the Fed and all that stuff will tend to shift things in the economy and also affect rates. Not that I want this show or this episode to be all about mortgage rates, you know, that's kind of blah and boring. Let's talk about things that are a little more exciting. But I am going to ask you one or two questions about that. In your opinion, you know, how does the change in government that is coming up and around the corner affect the mortgage landscape going into 2021? Because everybody's thinking about what do I do going forward in the new year? It's a very good question and one that I've been answering more often as of late. And the impact is huge. So I'm going to take us a little bit in the weeds here. I've got to go back a few months. You know, a lot of people were projecting that Trump might win this thing and have another four years. And under that scenario, there was a lot of concern that the director that Trump appointed to the FHFA, Federal Housing Finance Agency, Mark Calabria, who has been a huge deterrent of Fannie Freddie and the conservatorship that Fannie and Freddie have been in since the 0809 crash, he has been working under Trump's rule to dismantle the conservatorship, privatize Fannie Freddie, and open up the mortgage-backed security playing field to Wall Street again, okay? You know, I have personal feelings about this. I will try to reserve a lot of that because, like you said, I don't have any intention of making this a full conversation. But the release of conservatorship, Fannie Freddie conservatorship, if that had played out, and it seemed to have been on its way, whether it had happened or not with Trump winning and or not winning, was yet to be seen. But I think that would have had a pretty devastating impact on the lending landscape long term. I think that ultimately removing conservatorship good or bad thing. I could play both sides of that argument. But in the current environment, because of the pandemic and because of everything that's going on, I think that the release of Fannie Freddie right now would have been disastrous. So all of that said, I think that Biden's win is absolutely going to kind of protect that for the time being. It's going to be systems normal. We're not going to see too much change where that's concerned. But had Trump won and the conservatorship went away, one of the biggest changes we would have been faced with is the 30-year fixed rate at, at three or four, even 5% interest rates would be gone. That stuff is not going to be applicable anymore because if Fannie and Freddie are no longer in that conservatorship piece, that means that the United States government guarantee or that insurance policy for those mortgage-backed securities is also gone. And there's no investor on the planet that's going to lend somebody, especially on an investment property, a 30-year mortgage at 3.5%. It's just not going to happen. So rates on a 30-year basis would go up. Adjustable rate mortgages would become sort of uh, mainstream again. 
which isn't necessarily a bad thing. Again, I can argue both sides. I'm happy to do it if, if you'd like me to. But that's probably what we would have seen in early 2021 is the 30 year fixed model would be wildly changed from what it is today and what I think we're going to continue to see for the, the foreseeable future. That's a pretty strong statement. I have a hard time seeing the 30 year fixed going away because we're so accustomed to it and our consumer base really just buys housing and lives off of that 30 year fixed rate mortgage. So you're saying that it could have gone the way of Canada where you have three to five year terms over a 25 or 30 year amortized loan. In fact, the United States is one of two countries on the planet that offer that 30 years, right? 30 years, right? Yeah. So Canada and almost everybody else, absolutely, that would have been the norm to keep those interest rates low. Now, if I may, I'm just going to offer a couple of devil's advocate comments, okay? The 30-year fixed model, I love it, okay? I lived through 0809, so I had six-month arms, I had adjustable rate mortgages, et cetera, et cetera, and while they're not as dangerous as some, I think, believe today, the 30-year fixed mortgage is more of a psychological play. It's just the truth. And I don't mind that. I like that, that sleeping better at night knowledge that I have this rate fixed in, locked in for 30 years. But the reality, guys, is that the average shelf life of a 30-year fixed, and this is for primary residents, we assume that a rental is even less, right now is about 7.2 years. Mm -hmm. That's the life cycle of a 30-year fixed, okay? the percentage of people that start with a 30-year fix and pay off in 360 months, 30 years later, is less than 1%. Right. So, you know, <laughs> just, just food for thought. Yeah, I know what you're saying, and I tend to agree. However, if you lock in at a low rate and rates aren't going lower or you don't refi, it's nice to have that fixed mortgage payment over the long life. Because number one, your tenant is paying it off, and I say this so often, one, your tenant's paying it off, not you. But the other thing, too, is that your mortgage payment doesn't adjust with inflation. So it actually becomes cheaper every year because you're paying it off with inflated dollars. And that's the beautiful thing about locking it in. So Agreed. that's why I'm a fan yeah, of the 30 year. Access equity, right? I mean, there's other ways that you can look at. There's, there's, I think that as we start to open up a little bit more, those HELOCs and second lien position for investment properties might be more available. Yep. So I, I agree with that. So just wrapping that up on the politics, do you think it makes a difference who's in office? I mean, clearly they can affect policy, but does it really make a difference? Yes. Okay. Yes, I think so. And I think that in large part, it's going to have to do with the appointees that are, are the, the watchdogs of our industry, the FHFA, the, the CFPB. Yep. Um, yeah. And, and having those dynamically different viewpoints and yeah. regulation versus not. I'm, not. I'm not big on regulation, but at the same time, that regulation in, in many ways is important. But yes, I think that it makes a difference. Okay. So 2020, this has kind of been the year of COVID, it seems. It'll certainly go down in the history books as you know the year of the pandemic. But how has COVID affected mortgage lending, if at all? I have been doing this for a very long time. And in my 20 plus years, I've never seen anything like this. The mortgage industry, I think in large part, has actually been able to come to the rescue. Uh, we have seen unprecedented volume, largely due to rates, right? Low, low, ridiculously low interest rates. I have some stats here I was going to read just to kind of put a few things into perspective, and then I can forecast um, what, you know, some economists and mortgage brokers association are predicting for 2021. But the volume for let's just say refinances year over year, and I think this was effective first of December, are up 141% from the prior year. 
the volume because of the low interest rates have created some pressure points, let's say, let's call them pressure points. There just simply aren't enough human bodies in the mortgage industry to accommodate the massive influx of mortgage applications. And it's largely refinanced, but purchases and new builds have been extremely high. Some of the highest, I think, on record. So, you know, COVID has actually been, this sounds crazy to even say out loud, a friend to the mortgage industry. And I think that it was extremely beneficial to Americans to have access, right? Because a lot of people right now more than ever really needed to get into their equity, tap into that equity and utilize some of that for sheer survival. So cost of housing is down. People have been able to get into single family residents that may have been in the city and the urban areas kind of close in and wanted to get out. So there's a lot of different reasons I think that COVID has really been a good part of what has propelled the mortgage and lending and housing industries this year. Yeah, I tend to agree. I know we talked about this very briefly before we started recording, but it's, you know, for a lot of people, it's been a terrible year, you know, with unemployment, furloughs, whatever it may be. A lot of businesses, unfortunately, shutting down like restaurants and, you know, smaller retailers. But on the flip side, a lot of businesses and industry, and, you know, you mentioned it yourself, the mortgage industry, certainly for us in the real estate side, it's been an incredibly busy year. In fact, we I think we've had three record months this year where we've broken, like, uh, by a long shot, some of our previous records. And I'm very thankful and grateful for that. But what's interesting is I would think that a lot of people would have fear of certain things, fear of being in certain asset classes, fear of the stock market. But, you know, with the monetary policy and all this new money being created, it's really done nothing but fuel the stock market. And people are still in the stock market, and they know that they're nearing a top. And it's just a matter of when, not if, you know, there's going to be a correction. But I think that also has helped fuel your business and ours and other people in real estate because one, you know, they recognize it's a solid asset class. It's a hard asset. Two, interest rates are historically low. Uh, In fact, real estate is more affordable today than it was a year ago. Even though prices across the country and most markets have gone up, the reality is, is the mortgage payments have come down because interest rates have gone down. And my prediction is that the mortgage rates will stay flat, if not come down ever so slightly more in the new year. That was my prediction, but also that's the feeling of uh, Doug Duncan, the uh, chief economist for Fannie Mae. So it'll be interesting to see what happens going forward. By the way, do you think rates are going to change in the new year? Do you think they're going to change or go up or down? I think that rates today will probably stay relatively flat throughout the remainder of 2020. Do I think rates are going to go down in 2021? I think that the level, like you said, of how much that's possible is going to be fairly inconsequential. I think maybe they could come down, but by how much I think would be such a minor thing, Marco. I mean, there's just really nowhere for them to drop below, right? They're as low as I think they can really legitimately go without there being some other really bad things happening as a result of it. Let's, I mean, yeah. So maybe just by a sheer percentage, but since you brought that up, maybe it would be helpful to kind of quantify for those that are real rate watchers, which I get, rate's important, I understand, but I think people are often very surprised to learn that largely depending on the loan size itself, a margin of interest rate increase or decrease is pretty inconsequential to the big picture payment, right? On a hundred grand, the difference in, in the principal and interest payment using a quarter point either way, above or below, is you know seven, eight, nine dollars a month. So it's not something to, I think, get too tied up with. 
if yeah. you're in that price point range. But anyway, I, I since you brought it up, I'll piggyback one thing off of that. I'm going to repeat this in another episode for sure. But it's important not to be penny wise and pound foolish when it comes to mortgage rates, because even if rates were a full percentage higher than what they are now, they are still very low, historically speaking, and it's still cheap, cheap money. You have to realize that your returns, your gains on your cash on cash return, the amortization of the loan and the equity gains over time from appreciation far, far outweigh what the delta is or the difference in your monthly mortgage payment with a quarter point or half point change in the interest rate. There's not even a comparison. It's like a drop of water in a large bucket. That's how different it is. Well, and remember too, I mean, as interest rates go up, what happens to rents, right? They don't go at the same time, right. but when interest rates rise, we obviously always will see the rent baseline yep. increase, you know, trailing that over time. So yep. as investors, I think that largely we're pretty insulated from any huge rate swings. One yeah, way or another. absolutely. Owners, right. It's a different story, portability, et cetera. But as investors, I feel like they, they, a lot of people mistakenly put too much emphasis on the rate itself. That's that's my opinion. And I agree with you. And so this is a good segue. I mean, we're kind of talking about trends in a way, but do you see trends? Are you following any trends? And what trends do you see going into 2021 that might affect real estate investors, aside from rates, of course? Aside from rates? Yeah. I think that, that so the, and I did, I, I typed out some of the starts and, and some of the matrix. So the National Association of Home Builders, NAHB, they have a benchmark or a matrix that is used. And while December's report came in a little less than November, November was at a record, I think it was 90. And the, the matrix starts from zero to 100. Are you talking okay? about the Home Builders so, Index? Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So if we're looking at that, November was 90. I think December dropped to 86. And I, you know, a lot of the news outlets, you know, latched onto that. And, and you know, this is the first sign of everything is going to fall, you know, hell in a handbasket kind of thing. <laughs> However... You know, I, I feel like that's quite misleading because if you look historically, I think 1985 is how long the matrix has been around. So over 35 years, November was the highest it's ever been. And on the scale of zero to 100, if you're at 50 and above, we're expanding. Okay, so they didn't finish the sentence. Um, I really think that housing and lending combined all through 2021 and as far as into 2023, are going to remain very strong. That's my prediction. Yeah, I agree. I've been following the index as well, and it's amazing how high it's been. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, I think that's a historic high. It's never been, it never broke never. 90. Nope, correct. And that was last month. And, and, you know, I think it's important to mention the reason why it's so high and why builders are so bullish, and it's what I've talked about for a long time now, but especially in the last two months, and that is there is such a shortage of supply, strong demand, growing demand, and we're not keeping up with new household formations, which means that if you're a home builder, you're in a great position because you've got a built-in market that is hungry and in need of housing. So not everybody's going to buy. That's where we come in as real estate investors. You know, We need to have that supply provided to the rental pool out there. And so I'm actually looking at building some rental properties in uh, Florida right now that are new construction just because of that, because I just know there's a lot of people moving to Florida and there's strong demand and, you know, prices are going up and it's just, you know, all the cards are stacked in my favor. Agreed. And, and I mean, I, I won't spend any time on this, but like you, I am looking very seriously at joining with a established builder in South Carolina, actually a large PUD planned unit development, new construction for the very same reasons. The demand is there. The need is there. 
why not fill it? I, I mean, anyway. Yeah, for sure. So kind of wrapping that piece up, are there things that real estate investors should be aware of going into 2021? I mean, we're talking about the uh, the concepts and what's going on, but me listening to this as a real estate investor, what should I be aware of? You know, I think I, th I said earlier that business as usual, kind of. I think that the lending platform is going to remain uh, relatively unchanged. You know, because of COVID, a portion of the lending platform took some hits, but that was for the FHA the lower down, lower credit score individuals, right? They really kind of were scrutinized heavily. Us investors, and I don't mean to keep going back to the 0809, but post 0809, we just got the, the stuff kicked out of us, right? right. And the, the level of qualification that we needed before versus what we needed post 0809 was dramatically different. We had to walk on water post 0809, 20% down minimum, mm -hmm. um, much higher credit scores, much higher reserves. So I feel like that over the last 10-ish years, we've been living in this already over-qualified space. So COVID hasn't really changed that for us. So I think that, you know, going forward, I don't think that what I would advise people, uh, keep doing what you're doing. Keep your credit score as high as you have been. The reserves aren't going to change. DTI is not going to change. Uh, we've, we've already established that we believe that the housing and the starts there are going to remain very strong. I think renters are going to be wildly available because people are continuing to move out of, even if they can't qualify for their own, or um, they're, they're not ready to jump into home ownership. They're going to want to be renting in a home versus the apartment style mm -hmm. living. I think we're seeing that in droves right now. So to be prepared for, I would just keep your eye on the mark and know what your goals are and, and keep educating yourself, mm -hmm. keep your ears open and you know checking with you and, and your lender like us. Mm -hmm. So for any potential changes, I mean, that would be the, the only thing I can point to right now. Yeah. Okay. Well said. Foreclosures. I've answered this question multiple times on the show and I have my opinions and I have my own data, but I'm going to ask your opinion. What do you think is going to happen over the next 12 to 24 months, if anything at all, as it relates to foreclosures and foreclosure opportunities? So the forbearance, right, which was a big part of the first CARES Act, the ones that, that were in forbearance, what we're finding or what the data is telling us right now, that the new applications for forbearance are actually on the rise a little bit. The existing forbearances that expired, those are being modified. So they're not being brought current is what that means. The individuals are not able to bring those past unpaid mortgage payments current. They're modifying the loans where either the servicer, the one that's got the, the mortgage-backed security, the servicer is either tacking it onto the back or they're reducing the principal or some combination of the two. Those individuals that potentially are still struggling because of COVID, I don't know how any new provision of the CARES Act is going to potentially protect them and allow them more time under forbearance, which means foreclosures. I am certain that there will be services out there that their bandwidth has been stretched to the point that they can't offer the additional assistance without damaging their own need to live. So I expect to see foreclosures as a result of the forbearances that continue. The question is going to be what the federal government may come in and subsidize or do for them. But I, I, there will be some opportunity for investors on a foreclosure basis to be able to, to have more inventory available to them that isn't the new construction. Sure. Okay. Interesting. I think there's a lot of truth in what you just said. I, in fact, I don't disagree with anything that you said. The one thing, the one big thing that I think is a saving grace is that a lot of people, even if they're behind, have a lot of options today because most of these properties have enough equity that it gives them options. 
It's not that they're underwater like we saw in 2008 where people were upside down and property values were below what was on the property. There's enough equity out there. In fact, I don't have the data in front of me, but there is a lot of equity out there, like in the trillions of dollars. So people are actually in a good position where they have options because they have a lot of equity in their home. And so lenders, I believe, would be very willing to make modifications to allow them to stay, even if they're in default. That's where the, uh, the, you know, the modifications come in and whatnot. I just think we're in a different time and space compared to 2008. 100%, night and day. That said, let me offer a couple of thoughts, though, from an underwriting perspective, how the forbearance can impact. Let's say that aside from the servicer offering additional recourse or allowance beyond what the current contract for the forbearance gave them. Let's say that they wanted to refinance some of that, tap into some of that equity and pull borrowed funds are non-taxable, right? So maybe they want to pull some of that and utilize pay. If you are in forbearance, even though it doesn't negatively impact credit score, that's for the CARES Act, okay? A lending, conventional lending perspective will require that the forbearance is removed, is canceled, and then you've got two options past that to qualify for any kind of financing. One, you've got to bring all past due payments current, and then you're eligible to refinance immediately. Or you have to remove the forbearance, get out of the forbearance, and finalize whatever you know modification there is there, and make three consecutive mortgage payments before you're eligible for conventional financing. That might be useful for some people to, to hear. Interesting. Okay. So that's not proposed. That's actually a, a given? Yes, that's what it is today. Interesting. Okay. Okay, so let's start to wind some things down here. Let's just quickly talk about loan products. What loan products have gone away? I know things change, it seems, year over year and sometimes every few months. What has gone away and what is here today? So early on this year, we had some pretty significant casualties. We lost non-QM. QM stands for Qualified Mortgage, for those of you that aren't aware of that term. Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac are defined as qualified mortgages. So everything outside of that is now non-QM. It's not just for investors. It's for anybody that just doesn't fit into the, the conventional loan box. Uh, that went away almost immediately with COVID. Uh, it came back. Ridge Lending is now doing non-QM for investment only. We're not opening it back up to owner-occupied just yet. Uh, jumbo loans went away for a minute. Those are also back. We have a product called the All-in-One. Marco, I think we've talked about this. This is a first lien HELOC. That went away for a time. We brought it back. It is now suspended through the end of the year, but only because of sheer volume and intern times. So we'll have that back first of, of 2021 for those that are interested in that, that first lane HELOC uh, product. Otherwise, you know, everything else is pretty much back in the mix. I will say that I believe non-QM will probably start to improve its pricing first quarter of 2021. We just started non-QM and, and conventional for uh, quite a while. The spread between interest rate comparison between a Fannie Freddie and a non-QM was pretty wide. And I feel like at the end of 19, early 2020, we started to really see that margin narrow and it was a lot more competitive. As a result of uh, COVID, we're back here again. So I hope that in the, the first quarter of 2021, the difference between a non-QM rate and a conventional rate will come a little bit closer together again right now. As an example, let's say that Apples to apples scenario, Fannie Freddie is three and a half, the non-QM is probably six. And that's a pretty big spread between the two. Usually it's a point to a point and a half. So otherwise, you know, the products are alive and well for the most part. So for a real estate investor, what do you think the spread will end up being in the new year once that spread starts to diminish? What would be a typical spread in a normal environment? 
Uh, I think that if we're at, at three and a half on a conventional, if we can see, you know, a maximum of five on a non-QM, we're happy. You're, you're talking about non-owner occupied here. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Three and a half is a real number for a non-owner occupied today, depending on the variables of the, the transaction. But that's a real number. 30-year fixed. I, I mean, we're locking three and a quarter on a 30-year fixed rental property, sometimes lower. Yeah. Isn't that incredible? <laughs> incredible. All right. Well, last question, tips and advice. What would you advise people do or think about right now if they're thinking about investing in real estate or more so in real estate going forward? Um, I would say that property manager needs to be vetted. That would be the first thing that I would be, once I've identified the property that the numbers are looking good, et cetera, the property management would be a real big thing that I would wanna make sure that I'm comfortable with and understand all the, the moving parts there. From a financial perspective, just make sure that all of your documents are up to date, right? Every time you get a new pay stub or a new bank statement, the things that expire and renew, just stick it in there and get it to your lender. And you want to be working with resources that focus on education, uh, obviously, like Norada. Uh, not to, you know, I, he didn't pay me to say that. Yeah, well, but. thanks for the plug. I appreciate it. <laughs> but surrounding yourself with the people that have been doing this a long time that do provide that education, I think, is, is a big thing for investors that want that turnkey experience. Yeah, I call it the team. You have to have the right team. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Aside from your contact info here in a minute, is there anything else you want to share? Something I didn't ask you because sometimes people come on the show and they have, you know, something they really are burning to talk about. I, we covered everything. I think I think right. uh, we, we ran the gamut. Um, okay. Yeah, then just start contact information. Should I, should I give that? Yeah, so how can people find out you know, more about you and your company? So there's several ways to reach us. Obviously, our website at ridgelendinggroup.com. You can email us at info at ridgelendinggroup.com, or you can call us toll-free at 855-747-4343. 855-74-RIDGE is an easy way to remember that. Perfect. All right. Well, I really appreciate you coming on the show. This has been fantastic. Hang tight. I want to talk to you actually about something on my own side of the equation. But for everybody listening, I appreciate you guys listening in. Download your free report on our website, The Ultimate Guide to Passive Real Estate Investing. It's always there as a free download. If you are thinking about real estate or you have questions about financing, you can contact Chaley. Of course, you reach out to our investment counselors for a free strategy session. Other than that, if you have a question about real estate investing, just shoot it over to me. Go to askmarco.com. And that's it for today. Thank you for listening. And we will see you all on our next episode. Are you looking for a roadmap to financial freedom? If so, we have a solution for you. Narada Real Estate is offering a limited number of free strategy sessions to help you get out of the rat race. Learn how you can create wealth and build monthly passive income. To set up a time with one of our knowledgeable investment counselors, simply go to naradarealestate.com. That's N-O-R-A-D-A realestate.com. Nothing on this show should be considered specific personal or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate legal, tax, real estate, or business professional for individualized advice. For distribution or publication rights and media interviews, please contact the host.